Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Now let's maybe move on to your second chapter, uh, which presumably your second lecture, which, which has the uh, subtitle Bauer and Boltmann Redux. And again, uh, you know, uh, as you know, there's multiple Bowers. Here we're talking about F.C. Bauer, uh, B-A-U-R, uh, not Walter Bauer. Um, so why don't you introduce our listeners briefly to F.C. Bauer and, and Boltmann as well, uh, especially because uh, what you say in that chapter is you've seen a renew inter- renewed interest in these uh, two uh, German scholars in recent years. So, you know, how do you explain their appeal? And perhaps with regard to Bauer, since we've already been talking about uh, pastoral epistles, uh, maybe you could give us a bit of a taste of his scholarship. I seem to remember you talk about uh, his pastoral's commentary to, in German, the so-called pastoral epistles in, in chapter two of your book. Yes. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting book because, um, you know, it, it, it functions as a commentary, but it's not a commentary. It, it's a very closely argued, I think about 140 page, you know, in the smaller Gothic script, mm. about 140 page book that its sole purpose is to argue that Paul didn't write the pastoral letters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one of his earlier books. And, and it, it's a book that at that time he had to be very careful mm-hmm. that he not be real forthright about what he was proposing. That's right. Be, um, and so the, the sentences are very dense and very long. And, and as, as you know, back then, actually, in this was in the 1830s, mm-hmm. early 1840s, a lot of German scholars at that time still wrote their doctoral dissertations in Latin. Yeah. And I seem and to remember Latin, that uh, David Friedrich Strauss, writing in 1835, he actually lost his university didn't he, because of some of his views? So that was a, <laughs> a very precarious time. Yeah, and he was a student of F.C. Bauer. Yeah. So F.C. Bauer had to be careful. And by the way, F.C. Bauer threw him under the bus. He did not come to his, his student's defense. But F.C. Bauer had to, had to be, you know, sort of guarded in how he stated things. And the way they did that is they used prose that was so complex and, and definitions and words that were so technical that average German speakers without that training and indoctrination, really couldn't understand what these people were saying. Yeah. So anyway, F.C. Bauer was born in 1792. Mm. Um, he was born in Schwabia in southwest Germany. He was a Bible, you know, came up in Bible-believing Lutheran circles. Mm-hmm. But sometime in um, his uh, university training, uh, one, by the way, one-third one or slightly more of all university students in the whole German university system in the 1820-25 range, over one-third were theology students wow. in Protestant uh, faculties. So F.C. Bauer is one of these you know, thousands and thousands of theology students, pastoral students. Mm-hmm. But something happened, which I've never gotten to the bottom of, and, and his views switched, and he became eventually post-Christian. Mm. And uh, he's popular. He has been popular. He's been fought against. He was fought against then, and he's been fought against by conservatives throughout the generations. But he spearheaded the elitist approach to reading the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, two broad ways he did this. Number one, 
uh, he ended up using the conceptuality of the most popular philosophy of the day, who was uh, Hegel. Uh, he used Hegel's philosophy as sort of a hermeneutical grid, and I know there's controversy among specialists that he really used Hegel, and I'm just going to say yes, he really did use <laughs> Hegel in the end. And um, uh, this has become, you know, the way to do biblical scholarship is you don't take that hermeneutical grid of Christian teaching like the Trinity and the divinity of Christ and the authority of Scripture and so forth. You take the grid of reality or truth from the philosophy faculty that's most dominant, and you apply that to the Bible, and then that makes your reading critical. And F.C. Bauer spearheaded that. He also spearheaded the view that um, it's not what the Bible says on the surface that we're really after when we interpret the Bible. What we're after is the reason it says that. Why does it say that? In other words, there's something behind the text that's not actually what the text asserts, that is the correct interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, his, his writings, you, in just three or four years ago, his New Testament theology came out in English, and it's called Lectures on New Testament Theology. It's here on my desk, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Mm -hmm. And you can read it, and as you, you read it, you see that time and time again, when he interprets parts of the Bible— you're just astounded. Like he interprets the Sermon on the Mount in terms of Kant's categorical imperative. Yeah. That the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is not what Jesus says, which, you know, there's a lot there. I won't even try to summarize it. Mm -hmm. It really boils down to you should do what you know you ought to do. Right. That's the, that's the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, you know, F.C. Bauer as I say, he, he has been opposed by uh, scholars through the centuries, but as Western churches and Western societies have become more and more post-Christian and more and more liberal in their theological views, F.C. Bauer is viewed as sort of the father of our approach to the Bible if we don't want to pay attention and be under the authority of what it says on the surface. Mm -hmm. If we want to find something behind it that we think is the deeper truth. Mm -hmm that we're going to urge on people from the Bible, if we pay attention to the Bible at all. So F.C. Bauer is sort of a patron saint of that hermeneutical approach. And, it also uh, sounds a little bit like a precursor to this hermeneutic of suspicion, some sort of skeptical approach where you feel like you, you have to almost like distrust the the motives, you know, and, and maybe the ideology behind the biblical writers. You can't just take it at face value. They had either maybe sinister motives or... Or because they actually believe that stuff, they can't be trusted, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, it reminds me of what you said a few minutes ago, uh, Dr. Kirstenberger, mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, Jesus studies. Uh, you know, going back to the 1780s, 1790s, uh, scholars going back to at least Lessing mm -hmm. began to talk about the Gospels in terms of documents that conceal much more than they reveal. You know, the, the, Jesus really didn't talk like this. He was speaking in Aramaic. We have these Greek documents. And there were all these theories, you know, mm -hmm. source criticism came in. Where did the gospel writers, whoever they were, where did they get these views? And what really happened to cause them to write this? Mm -hmm. So that was a hermeneutic of suspicion a couple generations before Bauer. And then uh, Bauer's key word that he used was the German word tendence. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this bias, there's yeah. this uh, sort of pressure 
that the writer is responding to. He's not talking about Jesus' resurrection because he actually witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some agenda that they have that's causing them to say this. And that's what biblical criticism is so important for, because mm-hmm. when you read the Bible, you think it's saying X, Y, and Z, but actually it's not saying hardly anything that's on the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's really What really gave rise to these writings is something, you know, underneath that's that's more in line with with truth that we can discover so you're you're exactly right that this is a a a suspicious approach to scripture but you want to know about boltman too right well i was just about to ask perhaps it'd be helpful for our listeners if you could um introduce boltman's dialectical theology his demythologizing approach uh, and what do contemporary critical scholars find so appealing in boltman sure well boltman was born in 1884 and uh, he died in 1976. Not that long ago. And <laughs> not that long ago at all. <laughs> and he's credited with being the most influential New Testament scholar of the 20th century mm-hmm. internationally. So that, that's one reason he's uh, appealing today. It's just out of respect for his intellectual stature in the previous century. Mm-hmm. And uh, since since the time, you might say, of, of Bultmann's supremacy in the 50s and 60s and 70s of, of last century, no single figure has replaced him that sort of is viewed as the dominant uh, godfather of, of biblical studies. So people, I think, look back at, at his era with a little bit of nostalgia. Remember when it was so simple that there was this one main idea out there and and now it's it's kind of fragmented and we wish we could be it could be more simple like it it used to be Mm -hmm. um but he's popular among scholars today number one because they agree with his skepticism toward a christian reading of the bible Mm -hmm. Uh, the word you mentioned jimmy uh demythologizing um and, and in that view um to kind of repeat some things that are a part of the way that Bauer read the Bible. And, and scholars have observed, you know, actually Boltmann has very important resonances with, with F.C. Bauer and his approach. By demythologizing, what Boltmann was saying is, look, when, when we look at the Bible, uh, you could understand things like, you know, it teaches about the Trinity and it teaches about miracles and teaches about an incarnation and a virgin birth. Uh, he called that uh rubbish. Those things are rubbish. Um, we have to, those, they're myths. They never could have been true. So we have to demythologize the Bible. When we go to the Bible, mm-hmm. when we see stuff like that, we got to see through it to something deeper. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for, first point, they agree with Boltmann's skepticism toward a Christian reading of the Bible. Uh, secondly, Scholars often today, they, they affirm, and while they don't imitate uh, Boltmann's existentialist philosophy preference mm-hmm. uh, and his association with Martin Heidegger, mm-hmm. they do imitate what I'll call his syncretistic hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that I mean you take a secular dogmatic framework, and by dogmatic I just mean it functions kind of as a religion. Like you mentioned, uh, Andres Derrida. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a Derridaian reading, mm-hmm. or there's a Freudian reading, or there's a Marxist reading, mm-hmm. 
or there's a queer reading or, you know, some other kind of a critical theory mm-hmm. that's, that's not a constellation of Christian convictions. These are, these are convictions foreign to the biblical writings. Mm-hmm. But you use these convictions to provide your cognitive touch points in your mind and in your thinking. You're going to, as a Marxist, you're going to read the Bible and interpret it in Marxist terms. Mm-hmm. So I'll call that a current academic ideology. Mm-hmm. And then you call that critical. And Boltmann was was a genius at reading the Bible through a philosophical conceptuality mm-hmm. that was foreign to the convictions of the biblical writers. Like they thought that Jesus really was why they were writing. And so Andres, as you as you recall, when Adolf Schlatter, who believed mm-hmm. the Bible, when he wrote a New Testament theology, mm-hmm. he wrote five hundred pages on Jesus and the Gospels. That's right. And then he wrote a volume two. Mm-hmm. In Boltmann's New Testament theology, he's done with Jesus on page thirty. Mm-hmm. Page three almost. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's almost there's almost nothing about Jesus in his New Testament theology. Yep. Because um, he has an ideology that that, number one, discounts the historicity of the Gospels, mm-hmm. but number two is after an understanding of existence, which he thinks he finds in Paul and parts of John, and that's really all that's of interest to Boltmann in the New Testament, is this understand, this self-understanding, believing self-understanding. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in summary, Boltmann is, is popular among many today. I'm not saying that nobody critiques him. I'm not saying that people, you know, are, are following him blindly. I'm saying they do tend to agree with his skepticism toward a Christian reading of the Bible. And number two, they do tend to imitate his syncretistic hermeneutic. They borrow a conceptuality from the current mindset, and they mm-hmm. apply that to reading the Bible. And Boltmann pioneered that for the Western University. I think it's fascinating uh, even to see the connection then, you know, where you talk about Bauer and Boltmann redox, and you you mentioned that Bauer, uh, you know, chose to interpret uh, the New Testament uh, through Kantian philosophy, and and Boltmann, uh, you know, uses uh, Heidegger and existentialist philosophy. So even though the philosophers differ, the you know that that approach of reading the Bible through kind of an extraneous philosophical framework uh, remained the same. And then you know people like Strauss being a bit of a uh, you know, a figure that 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 logically culminated in in Boltmann with his with, with his with his idea of religious myth. Uh, you know, talking about Boltmann, I I once had a chance uh, in in Oxford to visit with John Ashton, whom I think you know as well, and and, and he wrote a book on the history of of the interpretation of the John of John's Gospel uh, called Understanding the Fourth Gospel. And in that, he has three parts, uh, before Boltmann, Boltmann, and after Boltmann. And <laughs> I think that's a tribute to, you know, his towering stature in the 20th century. And so I'm intrigued uh, to hear you talk about the fact that he, uh, you know, even though many of his, uh, his individual uh, views uh, have been debunked, uh, he still holds, uh, you know, quite a bit of contemporary appeal. Uh, you know, to this very day, uh, just because of the the broader uh, hermeneutical uh, approach that, that that people find attractive, this this idea of the the, the critical, uh, you know, ideological 
uh, reading. There, there is often a phenomenon, you know, um, I mean, the, the, the drift in the academy is consistently, you know, kind of away from confessional Christianity. And, and I think of, of in politics, you know, if you're a Republican, you, you might think back to Reagan all the time. Or if you're a Democrat, you might think back to, I don't know, FDR all the time. Mm-hmm. And when you actually look into Reagan or FDR, there might be a lot of things you could say, you know, that wasn't so good. <laughs> but for your movement's purpose, they, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what's not so good. You know, they stand for something. Yes. And they're like a, a rallying point. And, and I see Boltman as that rallying point for a lot of New Testament scholars, even mm-hmm. though a lot of his positions have just been totally dismantled. Oh. He still stands for Shredded. something that that everybody kind of rallies around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, now, moving on to your third chapter, uh, you ask the question that I'm sure uh, some of our listeners might be asking. You know, is there any middle ground? I think you say is Rupperschmal possible. Is there any way for populists to make common cause with elitists, or at least you know, to to uh, uh, perhaps adopt anything that might be useful in 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 this more elitist approach. Uh, what's your answer, and 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 why? Well, I'll define rapprochement as uh, a resumption of harmonious relations. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because you know, in, in a sense, what's happened, and, and Andres, you mentioned this a while ago, is that um, the critical view has distanced itself from the reading of the Bible in churches. And so, you know, the question is, is, is there any way to bring things closer back together? And, uh, you know, there, there are a number of strategies that, that people use. So let, me, let, me, let me give you a short answer. Yes and no. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, th- there is a possibility, I think, of, of coming back together, uh, but, but only under certain uh, conditions. Uh, one approach that evangelical scholars have used to um, sort of close the gap is, is I'll call it uh, apostasy. Just just give in and uh, admit that um, the elitist view is right and, uh, you know, go to war against what you used to believe. So that that's one option. And, you know, uh, in my book, I mentioned David Congdon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bart Ehrman is another example. Those are both Wheaton College graduates who, you know, at one time signed on as sort of confessing Christians, but now um, have rejected Christian faith. You know, if if the price of rapprochement, if the price of, you know, coming together with critical scholarship is giving up your Christian confession, well, that's, you know, that's not acceptable. Uh, there's another approach that people mm-hmm. use, and that is just kind, you could say, you know, scorched earth. And I'll call it unhelpful polemical denunciation. Mm-hmm. Some people some people approach critical study because of its problems. They just denounce it. And I think here of people who argue against any Bible but the King James Version because they think, you know, um, the Texas Receptus was willed by God and, and anything else is from the devil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's a total rejection of uh, rapprochement, and, and I don't think that's the approach either. But in between, mm-hmm. there's kind of a spectrum. Um, there's an approach that some use, I'll call it bifurcation. You maintain your personal Christian beliefs, but in public, you go along with the rules and the norms of the academy. 
And I don't really recommend that as a strategy for closing the gap. In other mm-hmm. words, act like you're going along with them, but you know, go to church on Sunday and in your quiet time, say, God, I still believe. I just can't really put my head up too high or it'll get shot off. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another way that there can be rapprochement, and I, I do respect this way. I, I've known scholars who are evangelicals, and, and, and they do go to church, and they don't hide it, but um, they don't maybe like join the Evangelical Theological Society, and, and their strategy is to destabilize the hegemony. So kind of work from the inside and try to publish things that are somewhat subversive of the consensus mm-hmm. and hope that they can, you know, uh, sort of be a Christian missionary undercover mm-hmm. behind enemy lines, so to speak. And, and I respect people who feel called, you know, to, to work within the academy like that. Uh, another approach is what I'll call strategic engagement. And I think there can be rapprochement if we uh, work within the confessional orbit, so you teach at Midwestern or you teach at Covenant or you teach at Trinity, but of course you read what non-evangelicals write, uh, you learn from what the the elitists are saying, you interact with it, uh, you may speak at conferences or you may write in forums where that academy is in the driver's seat. But, you know, strategically, you engage what's there. I think there can be a lot of, you know, making common cause and constructive dialogue with scholars that are elitist if we do our homework and if we don't lose our souls in the process of interacting with them. Then um, there's another approach, which I'll call focus on receptive audiences. And, uh, Andres, you mentioned writing for the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, many scholars realize that non-elitist views are just not welcome in certain circles. On the other hand, there are all kinds of places that need solid scholarship. Uh, and it's the kind of scholarship that you really need to go and get a doctorate to, to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And it may be in North America. It may be in Africa. It may be in Brazil. It may be in Hong Kong, at least the old Hong Kong. But given the explosion of the Christian population around the globe in recent generations, there's, there's real need for writing and there's real need for teaching the Bible and for leadership equipping and leadership training in parts of the world uh, where we don't need to import you know, the knowledge of this skeptical view. It's, it's probably already there, but really people need to be grounded in the first or second generations in the Christian tradition and the Christian scriptures. So I think there can be rapprochement in the sense that we learn from, you know, the history of critical study and we learn the best of what critical scholars do, with which generally there is something of value in all but the most skeptical scholarship. Learn all we can from it, mm-hmm. uh, but not be subverted by it and uh, use you know, the critical discussion to sharpen our our own teaching and our own writing mm-hmm. and our own equipping of Christian leaders in parts of the world that really want to know what does the Bible say and how can we uh, transmit that to, to our people, many of whom are in their first generation of Christian life, like in Africa. There have been hundreds of millions of people coming to the church in the last 40, 50 years. How do you ground them in the scriptures when you know, for centuries, they've had nothing of the Scriptures or very little of the Scriptures in their cultural setting. Well, Dr. Yarbrough, we 
thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and uh, appreciate your work and uh, look forward to um, seeing you on campus here at Midwestern in the coming year. And so we're grateful for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.